Friend, if you try to establish your own righteousness before God by what you do, you're going to land yourself in hell someday. You need the righteousness which comes from God, but seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's rebellion. That's the problem. And so he says, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. They sought the scriptures, and in the process, they missed the Lord. That's why he just said earlier, you can't hear his voice or see his form. It was not a matter of I can't believe. It was a matter of I won't believe. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Fourfold Witness of Christ. We are in a study of the Gospel of John, and over the last few days we have looked at the claim by Jesus Christ that He and God the Father are one. Although this would have been blasphemy had it been spoken by anyone else, Jesus has a fourfold witness that affirms His deity. We have so far seen the testimony of prophetic scripture and the testimony of John the Baptist. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he looks at the rest of the evidence. There's the witness of the Father's word. There's the witness of the testimony of the forerunner's witness. But now there's the testimony of the fruitful works. Look at verse 36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. As great as John the Baptist was for Christ. The Lord says, I've got someone greater than John. Even notice the works. It says, for the works. It's plural in the original. If you're using the NIV, it says work, singular, but it's plural in the original Greek. I told you you need to get an essentially literal translation of the Bible, like the NAS or the King James Version, because it's important for Bible study purposes. This whole argument is built around the plurality of that word, not the work, for the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, the works that Christ did bore witness that the Father sent him. Christ is saying, listen, John the Baptist's testimony is fine, but on top of John the Baptist's testimony are the works that I do. No one could contradict the miracles that Jesus did. Hey, the guy had been paralyzed for 38 years. Everybody knew it. He can now walk. John 9, the guy had been blind since birth. Now he can see. Lazarus, he'd been dead for four days. Now he's alive. They couldn't contradict it. It was irrefutable proof. The best they could do was to say the miracles he did came by the power of the devil. They couldn't deny the miracle, so they denied its source. Hey, 21 century later, people are still doing the same thing. The so-called Jesus Seminar of expert scholars go through the Bible and pick and choose what they want to believe, denying the miracles that Jesus did. But what they say does not prove a thing. Think about this gospel alone, what we've studied. In John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. He exercises creation, something only God can do. Later in that chapter 223 is an introduction to what Nicodemus will observe. They saw many other signs and miracles that he did. And Nicodemus is going to say, no one can do these signs and miracles that you did unless God were with him. We know you did it. 
John chapter 4, he heals the nobleman's son. There's this guy who's got his kid 20 miles away, and in his mind's eye, Jesus sees this sick little boy about to die, and Jesus speaks the word, and instantly over distance, he's miraculously healed. And then this fellow here at the pool of Bethesda in this chapter, a paraplegic, you would have thought they would have rejoiced. Oh, look at the fellow can walk. No, all they can do is rag on the Lord. But his works give testimony that he's not a mere man. Turn to Luke 7 for just a second. Will you Luke chapter 7? Somebody asked me and I said, okay, I'll cover it. John the Baptist, they said, wait a minute, he got in jail. And he got kind of shook up. Remember John? His ministry, public ministry, lasted for a short time, about a year and a half. And ultimately, he denounced the adulterous marriage of Herod Antipas and Herodias. So they threw him in jail. You don't like what the preacher says? Lock him up. You would have thought, since the people thought he was a prophet, that they would have come to his defense, but they did not. They left him in jail. The Pharisees didn't do a thing to lift a finger. Why? Because they connected John with Jesus. They didn't like Jesus, neither did they like John. So John's in prison. And so he sends some of his disciples. Look at verse 20. And when the men had come to Jesus, to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Now he's been in prison some months, which you know had to be incredibly difficult for this man. Here is a man accustomed to being out in the wilderness, yet he's confined indoors. Here's a man who's typically active. He's got a mandate to preach, yet he's silenced. Here's a man that he announced judgment is coming, but it appears very slow in coming. No one interceded on John's behalf. No one got him out of prison. If Jesus is the expected one, if there's this great coming kingdom, what am I doing here? By the way, it's not unusual for great spiritual leaders to have times and occasions of doubt and uncertainty. Moses, on one occasion, he said, God, why did you choose me? Kill me. Take my life. I'm sick of these people in their rebellion before you. Elijah, he said, Lord, I alone am left. Everybody else has bowed the knee to Baal. And Jeremiah the prophet, he said, Oh, curse is the day that I was born. I wish my mother's womb had become my grave. Every time I preach, these people make fun of me. They laugh at me. They mock at me. They don't listen to me. Paul even knew the depths of despair as recorded in 2 Corinthians 1. But understand there's a difference between doubt and, dis and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. Doubt comes when we can't always understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. Unbelief is a matter of the will. When we are unbelieving, we are refusing to obey what we know to be true. And here's John. It's not rooted in willful unbelief, but of doubt that was nourished by the emotional and physical strain of being in a prison. Remember those disciples on the Emmaus Road? They meet the Lord Jesus. They don't know it's him. And Jesus uh, is talking to him, and they say, you don't know what happened? Oh, there's one we thought he was the expected one who was going to deliver Israel. But they killed him. Though there's some women running around saying they saw him alive. So Jesus opens the scriptures. Why? To dispel their doubts, because that's what God's word does. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, I would have loved to have heard that sermon. He walks through the Old Testament showing that the Christ must suffer and die and on the third day rise from the dead. And then their eyes are open and they realize it's the Lord Jesus. They said, oh, we're in our hearts burning when he preached to us. 
And the Lord does the same thing with John the Baptist. Oh, John understood a lot more than those Emmaus disciples did. He knew that he must die, that he was the Lamb of God. But what he could not put together in his mind was the sacrificial death in his reigning Lord who would come in great power because the Bible teaches both. What he couldn't see was that there was a time of separation, that the first time he would come as a sacrificial lamb, the second time he would come as the sovereign Lord. So don't be too hard on John. We've got the whole Bible. He didn't have it. He's in prison. He's not hearing a lot of what's happening. And so at this very time, verse 21, he cured. John's disciples are watching. At this very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached. What was he doing? He was taking him back to the works, the prophecies that the Messiah himself would do, that he would unstop deaf ears, that he would open blind eyes, that he would loosen uh, paralyzed tongues and limbs and so forth. That's what John needed. That's all he needed. And that's what he's doing with these Pharisees. Look at verse 36, chapter 5. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John... For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness that the Father has sent me. All right? Now he calls a fourth and final one to the stand. The fourth one that he calls to give testimony concerns the faithful writings. There's the testimony of the faithful writings. Now it's a rather mute witness. It's a silent witness. But it is as inspired as God himself because all of the scriptures were given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. What a tragic thing to study the scriptures and to miss Christ. Now, the way it is written in the original Greek language, you could take it as an imperative, a command, search the scriptures... Or you could take it from the Greek New Testament as an indicative. You search the Scriptures. I take it to be the latter, that he's giving a statement of fact. You search the Scriptures. He's not commanding them to do it. This is something that they had done. You search the Scriptures, but the problem, guys, is you have the wrong motivation. You think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus wants them to know that there's no intrinsic life-giving power in the Bible. The Bible will profit you absolutely nothing if you do not respond to its message. He says, the Bible, the scriptures, they bear witness of me. Oh, all of the Old Testament bears witness of Christ. From Genesis to Malachi, wherever you cut it, it bleeds Jesus Christ. It is these that bear witness of me. Remember, the first word of the New Testament had not yet been written. Almost for the first 30 years of church history, the church, all they had was the Old Testament, but that's all they needed Because it revealed the Lord Jesus. And then in the late 50s, 80s, the New Testament began to unfold. I believe it was all virtually done before 70 AD. In either case, if you will examine the Old Testament books carefully, you will discover that it is all about Christ, that he is the hero. So he says, you guys have read it, but you've missed it. You didn't get it. Why didn't they get it? What was the problem? Look at verse 40. He identifies it. 
and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. The problem was not a problem of the head. It was a problem of the heart. Please note, it does not say you were unable. My Calvinistic friends tell me that God chose some in eternity past to go to hell and others to go to heaven. I don't believe that for one skinny minute. Now, God is an omniscient God. He knows everything. And yes, three times over in the Revelation, it said in eternity past, God wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life. God could look down the corridors of time and see every individual who has ever lived who had come upon him in faith. And he wrote their name in his book. If God didn't know everything, God wouldn't be God. But understand, God's omniscience doesn't mean that God coerced your will. It's not that they were unable. It is that they were unwilling. They were not looking for a Savior at this time in human history. Why? Because they had become self-righteous. They didn't see the need for a Savior. Paul, when he describes the problem of the Jews in his day, says this in Romans 10, For I bear them witness, these Jews... They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Hey, there's people like that today. These Muslims, man, they got a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. I got Catholic friends who are incredibly religious. A zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. There's a lot of people like that. They're zealous, they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. For not knowing about God's righteousness. That's the theme of Romans. The righteousness which comes from God, not from man, but from God on the basis of faith through Christ. Friend, if you try to establish your own righteousness before God by what you do, you're going to land yourself in hell someday. You need the righteousness which comes from God, but seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's rebellion. That's the problem. And so he says, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. They sought the scriptures, and in the process, they missed the Lord. That's why he just said earlier, you can't hear his voice or see his form. It was not a matter of I can't believe. It was a matter of I won't believe. Oh, these friends, they counted every letter. They weighed every word. They scrutinized every sentence. But all along, they came to the wrong conclusions. And by the way, Gentiles are no different today. People today who think that somehow they can establish their own righteousness and so they read the Bible and they read it like a rule book as an interesting point of history. It's some kind of lifestyle simply to model and they miss the Savior all along. Now this is an important verse. The Lord is appealing to the Scripture. He never appeals to their Jewish traditions because man's traditions have absolutely no authority. That's why I don't preach church doctrine. I preach the Bible. Any doctrine that we believe, if it's not rooted and founded in the Bible, it's worthless. And then he says, lest they misunderstand his motivation, I do not receive glory from men. I'm not seeking your praise, guys. I'm seeking the praise that comes from the Father. Listen, if he were just seeking their honor, their glory, worldly glory, he would have bended. He would have gone ahead and agreed with these guys and given them what they wanted. But he doesn't do that. He says, I know you. That you do not have the love of God in yourselves. They didn't really love God because if they really loved God out of a compassionate the heart, they would have said, praise the Lord, this guy is walking. You can profess to know God. You can profess to love him. But he says, I know you don't really love him. And then he gives a terrible prophecy. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. 
By the way, this is a very important principle here. The opposite of truth is error. It's the opposite side of the same coin. To refuse to embrace the truth is to open yourself up to error. A man who refuses to listen to his doctor's right remedy will often embrace a wrong remedy. Someone who will not believe the truth of creation will buy into the lie of evolution. If a person will not listen to someone who's pointing them on the right road, they will invariably go down the wrong road. Jesus Christ came fully credited by the Father as Israel's Messiah with all of the works demonstrating what the Messiah would do. And they rejected him. Now, interestingly, history records that the Jews never embraced a Messiah until after they rejected Christ. And after they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, they embraced all kinds of Messiahs. And ultimately, an awful, false Messiah who is Antichrist, who will come in the place of Christ, against Christ. Christ came in his own name. Antichrist did not come in his own name. Christ came in the Father's name, but Antichrist will come in his name, and they'll believe him. Now, mark it down big and plain. If you reject what is true, you will often embrace what is false. There are liberal preachers who stand behind pulpits who are there because they grew up in a liberal church and that's all they've ever heard. And they just need someone to give them the gospel. There are other men who are false prophets, who wear the garb of Christianity, who teach false doctrine because at one point in their life they heard the truth and they said no to it. There are people in cults today because the cult was the first one to knock on their door because a lot of us were doing nothing for God. There are others who are in cults today because they heard the truth, they rejected the truth, and they ended up believing a lie. Oh, they wanted a Christ who would smash Rome and reestablish Israel as a superpower. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? They wanted worldly glory. Christ wasn't about to bring that, and so he concludes verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. It's a rather strange statement, isn't it? Now remember, Abraham was the most venerated of all the saints in the Hebrew firmament of stars, but Moses was second. And so they loved Moses. They quoted Moses all the time. And yet he says, the one who accuses you is the one on whom you've set your hope. For he says, follow it, he goes for the jugular, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. If you believe Moses, implication, you don't. But if you had believed Moses, you'd believe me, because the various scriptures that you use to defend your religion will one day witness against you. They knew what Moses wrote, they just didn't believe what he wrote. But if you do not believe his writings, verse 47, how will you believe my words? Now, every liberal theologian ought to hear that. These who deny Mosaic authorship, who say the first five books of the Bible were written by four or five different authors, nonsense. To attack the writings of Moses is to attack Jesus Christ. That's what our Lord is saying. Moses wrote about him. Let me just give you an example or two. Right down there in the margin with you, Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15. Put that next to verse 46. There it reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. 
I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command you. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses predicted that a prophet is coming. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Messiah, who is equated with God in the Old Testament, would fill three offices, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. So Moses writes of a prophet who, by the way, when Peter preaches to those Jews in that second sermon, as recorded in Acts chapter 3, he quotes this passage of Scripture. Hey, the Lord Jesus is the prophet that Moses wrote about. If you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. Because Jesus was all the way through the first five books of the, of the Bible that Moses authored. He's there in the ark. Peter calls it a type, an illustration of Christ. One boat, three floors. One God, three persons. One door, because there's only one way of salvation. He's in the offering of Isaac. When Abraham takes him up to Mount Moriah, which is also Mount Calvary, where he's about to slay his uniquely begotten son, his specially begotten son, as the writer of the Hebrew calls him, the miracle baby who is given to this couple, a picture of the miracle virgin-born son of God who on the same mountain would be slain for our sin. He's seen, as we saw in John 1 and Jacob's ladder, he's seen in the story of Joseph, he's seen in the Passover lamb, he's seen in the manna that comes from heaven as we'll study in John 6, he's seen in the riven rock, he's seen as we looked in John 3, and the serpent on the pole. But if you did not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The indictment is clear and the consequence is inevitable. To disbelieve the writings of Moses was to make genuine faith in Jesus Christ impossible. And may I tell you, as I've told you many times, you can find out a whole lot about where a man of, so-called man of God is just by finding out what he believes about Moses. You ask him, do you believe in a literal creation story? Do you believe in a real original couple, Adam and Eve? Do you believe in a real boat that Noah and his people and, and the animals of the world were put on that came about in a worldwide... You just ask them what they believe about Moses and you'll find out whether or not they are a believer in Jesus Christ. You can pull back all the veneer. When they start talking about multiple authors in Moses or denying its historicity, God says it. I don't say it. The Lord says they're not Christians. Because if you cannot believe Genesis 1-1, how can you believe John 3-16? So their case was hopeless. Because Moses, whom they believed as their great intercessor, now becomes their great accuser. Their doom was sealed. Now, the Lord's not intimidated by these fellows. If you check a harmony of the Gospels, you'll discover that after this encounter... He deliberately violates the Sabbath again. He asks his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. And then he heals a man with a withered hand. As we're going to see in John chapter 7, they're going to bring up this paralytic man again. But before we judge them, we need to make sure we examine our own lives. Don't allow religious tradition to take the place of God's Word. Don't become so involved in Bible study that in the process you miss Jesus Christ. Don't let your knowledge of your, the Bible give you a big head and not a burning heart. A lot of people like that. So there you have it, four witnesses. The Father, the forerunner, the fruit, and the foreshadowing of the Old Testament. Each one carefully chosen and selected by Jesus Christ. 
And so now his defense rests. As a member of the jury, you must deliberate. You need to weigh the evidence. Now, some of these people said no, because they were unwilling to come to him. But you see, you must decide. And really, it's not Jesus Christ who's on trial. You're on trial. Because what you do with Christ will determine what God will do with you. It's a sobering decision. It's the most important decision of all life. If he's just a man, it doesn't really matter. But if he is God in human flesh, then nothing else matters. Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for this portion of Scripture that you gave us through the Apostle John by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and his marvelous defense of his own deity recorded here for all ages of the church to read. I pray today, Father, for someone who's here who does not have the assurance that if Christ were to come today or if they were to be taken tragically out in death, that they would go to heaven. Now, friend, I want to tell you, don't be like the Jew and the Gentiles in Christ's day, many of whom tried to establish a righteousness of their own. Don't be like the religious man of our day who thinks that by going to church and being baptized and keeping the Ten Commandments that you can get right with God. Friend, if you could get right by those things, Christ's death, the Bible says, was useless. It was in vain. It was for nothing. He could have come as a model, but he didn't. He came as a substitute. And there in his own body on the cross, he took all of your sin that you've ever committed or will commit. He bore its penalty, the wrath that you should experience in a forever place of punishment Christ took upon himself and he satisfied the father with his own shed blood. And then God raised them from the dead, declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. Your only hope is Jesus Christ for their salvation and none other, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But you must come to God in faith. The Bible says whoever will call upon him will be saved. God can make you that promise because he did what he did through his son. But you must believe what God promised. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if you're uncertain today whether or not you're going to heaven, you need to come in faith and believe that God is able to save you today. For the scripture says today is a day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Would you in simple childlike faith say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Tell him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself, but I thank you that you came to earth and that as the sinless son of God, you died in my place and you took my punishment. Today, as the risen Lord, I turn from my sin and I trust you to save me. Just tell him, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you've saved me, I will openly, publicly confess you before men. Father, we pray and ask that the Spirit of God would help someone today to make that decision. For those of us that know the Savior, help us to be unashamed of Him. Help us to study and show ourselves approved as workmen who are not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Help us to present before men the risen Lord. May we never be silent in our lips. May they be open in praise and ready to share with a lost and dying, condemned world. Give us the grace as a body of Christians 
to carry out what you've commissioned us to do as a local church. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 014. Maybe you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally. Don't forget that you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.